I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to another Shakespeare Anyone mini-episode. In these mini-episodes, we'll be exploring topics that are related to Shakespeare but aren't necessarily connected to whatever play we've been discussing. And they're mini because, well... They're shorter than our other episodes. They're like quartos if the regular episodes are folio editions. In today's episode, we'll cover trade and commerce during Shakespeare's time. Fun fact, this episode was selected by our Patreon patrons at the Gentry, Noble, and Royal Patron levels. Special thanks to Collective Action Comics podcast, Claire Sharp, Elizabeth Sharman, and Katie Smith.
Now, today's episode might feel a little unusual in that we will start by talking broadly about Britain's development from prehistoric England up to early modern England. According to Alexander Añaves and Kiram Nascencia Glu's How the West Came to Rule, The Geopolitical Origins of Capitalism, human development, even in its earliest stages, developed in two modes. The first is uneven development. The basis for uneven development lies in the ecological conditions of a human's environment. In short, different bands developed differently due to different conditions of their natural world. The second mode of human development is combined development. The basis for combined development lies in communities' continuous interactions with one another in causally significant ways in their own collective reproduction. The Paleolithic hunter-gatherers, quote, depended for their biological reproduction on exogamous interaction with other bands, extending networks of consanguinity which provided the basis for periodic gatherings, shared language, and security against environmental stress. Unquote. Eventually, bands developed social multiplicity, which developed political multiplicity, or various proto-states. As societies became more complex, Añaves and Asensio Glu argue geographical factors became less fundamental to their growth and survival. The formation of states, social relations, and cultural institutions became far more significant in strengthening one's sphere of influence. Think of Britain, a bog that became an empire. Now, let's take it back to Britain's origins. Prehistoric Britain, or the period before the written language, lasted for hundreds of thousands of years and is divided into three ages— the first age is the Stone Age, and this age is divided into three sub-ages, Paleolithic, Mesolithic, and Neolithic. During the Paleolithic period, archaic humans probably first arrived in Britain in 800,000 BCE, but by 30,000 BCE, Neanderthals are thought to have died out and modern humans walked Britain. Evidence of flint tools found in areas low in flint resources suggests that during this period, people moved over wide areas and that groups might have traveled to meet and exchange goods. During the Mesolithic period, from roughly 15,000 to 5,000 BCE, Mesolithic people further developed the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and followed a complex pattern for seasonal, or sometimes permanent, occupation. Farming was introduced by migrating European bands around 4500 BCE, and material culture suggests distinct territories became permanently occupied by different groups. By the Neolithic period, from roughly 4300 to 2000 BCE, farming became widespread and led to a settled way of life. Homes, monuments, and burials are all evidence of building permanent communities. The second age in Britain's prehistory is the Bronze Age, which lasted from roughly 2200 to 750 BCE. The most important development was technology for copper, gold, and bronze, metalworking. Bronze replaced stone as the main material for tools, and many materials were outsourced from Ireland, Wales, and continental Europe. In addition, large livestock holdings developed in the lowlands and field systems became common practice. Settlements developed a larger variety of building types that were enclosed by fencing or ditching, suggesting the emergence of social elites. The last and final age of prehistoric Britain was the Iron Age, which lasted from roughly 750 BCE to 43 CE. 
hey, we're now entering the Common Era. The Iron Age was mostly rural, and people lived in small villages and farmsteads that were led by individuals or small groups. Ironworking techniques were used to produce tools, like swords. Plows and axes made farming more efficient. Wheat and barley were staple crops. Timber was used for building homes, tools, carts, and as fuel. And cattle, sheep, chickens, and pigs provided their respective resources. Overall, prehistoric Britain developed first as nomadic hunter-gatherer economies that traded material goods with fellow bands. As hunter-gatherers permanently settled, tribes lay claim to specific goods and resources and traded with other territories both on the island and beyond. Around 100 BCE, iron bars were used as currency and coinage was developed under the model of continental Europe. What came next for Britain was a Roman age. Prior to Roman invasion, migration and trade between Britain and continental Europe was already established. In fact, Roman general Julius Caesar made two expeditions to Britain in 55 and 54 BCE as part of a campaign to establish client rulers, or non-Roman quasi-rulers, and bring Britain into Rome's sphere of influence. But by BC 43, Rome invaded, conquered, and consolidated the lower half of England and Wales. Greco-Roman civilization replaced the Iron Age as Brits became culturally and legally Romans until around BC 411. Now let's talk about medieval England. After the fall of the Roman Empire in roughly 476 CE, there was a centuries-long period of transition in which England developed into what most scholars and academics today call the Middle Ages. Early Middle Ages Britain was mostly rural with town centers set up to conduct trade, Similar to a modern farmer's market, these markets were temporary and informal, though regulated under local kings. Evidence of pieces of boats in burial sites suggests traders traveled by boat to other markets. While trade was the central economy, coinage was used for taxation. By the 8th century, territories became kingdoms with social elites assuming the role of kings and queens. Professor Robin Fleming suggests that through taxation in the money economy and writing as a tool of government, the social elites were able to codify feudalism's steep hierarchy. In a feudal system more broadly, the system was in constant flux. According to medieval historian Mark Bloch, there were two feudal ages, the pyramid-shaped trickle-down system with kings, lords, and serfs, and a feudal age following the Renaissance that looked more like a big net of ties. Due to feudalism's murkiness, Dr. Eleanor Janega prefers the label manorialism because it describes the political system more generally and focuses on the basic economic unit of the manor of a landed estate. Medieval society generally includes these qualifiers, a subject peasantry, service tenements, a class of specialized warriors, ties of obedience of protection, fragmentation of authority, and survival of associations. According to Dr. Janega, this was not a government, but tactics to maintain power. Medieval feudalism, or manorialism, lasted for roughly seven centuries. During and following serfdom, England transitioned into a system of trade and commerce called mercantilism. Mercantilism is an economic system which aims to maximize the exports and minimize the imports for an economy, it's regarded as an early form of capitalism. 
Capitalism is an economic system where the means of production are privately owned and operated for profit. Commerce, on the other hand, is simply the interchange of goods or commodities between individuals or states. Early artisans and merchants used commerce for merchant trade and created the first businesses. These merchants exchanged goods and services directly with the public for purposes of making money. A central feature of mercantilism, and perhaps the most famous institution of the mercantile economy, was merchant guilds, especially the guild associations of long-distance traders. According to Oscar Gelderblom and Regina Graff's The Rise and Fall of Merchant Guilds, Rethinking the Comparative Study of Commercial Institutions in Premodern Europe, while, quote, formal associations of traders existed in the ancient world, and they may have been formed as early as the 8th century in medieval Europe, unquote, guilds came into greater prominence in the 11th and 12th centuries. Merchant guilds developed as a response to the difficulties faced by merchants who engaged in long-distance travel. This differentiated the merchant guilds from guilds that organized for the interests of local craftspeople and retailers. As traveling merchants often had to cross political boundaries, they could not simply rely on local governments or rulers for protection and infrastructure, like the local guilds could. Local guilds were made up of skilled craftspeople, especially those who manufactured luxury goods. Members of both merchant guilds and local guilds agreed to rules that governed how their trade operated, such as the quantity and quality of their goods, their shipping methods, or even how they trained apprentices. In some cases, guild members were sworn to also, quote, help each other in cases of fraud, violence, and personal hardship, unquote. In return, guilds provided infrastructure for their members beyond enforcement of contracts with localities, from organizing daily exchanges, to protection against theft, to providing housing, to facilitating the balance of supply and demand. The Elizabethan and Jacobean eras actually saw the start of the decline of merchant guilds in England, as well as elsewhere in Europe, and a movement towards, quote, entrepreneurs operating individually within informal networks of family and friends, unquote. This was due to changes within local governments, who began to think it was in their best interest to protect local businesses. During this time, merchant guilds transitioned into more social organizations and opened up membership to non-traders. They catered to the religious needs of their local members, often having their own chapel or a strong relationship with a local parish or monastery, and sometimes owned guild burial grounds and founded fraternities. These now more social organizations defined the social lives of their local members, but also allowed them contact with traveling foreign merchants. Coinciding with the decline of merchant guilds came the earliest English joint stock companies. These proto-corporations were typically created by royal charter and allowed individuals, or shareholders, to pool their resources in order to share profits and minimize risk. Joint stock companies would eventually exist across industries in early modern London. In fact, the Lord Chamberlain's men, later the King's men, were a joint stock theater company, and Shakespeare was a stockholder. Joint stock companies were similar to modern-day conglomerations, such as the Walt Disney Company, General Electric, or Berkshire Hathaway, as joint stock companies also often had many sub-organizations operating under the same royal charter. The earliest English joint stock companies emerged in order to facilitate long-distance trade and exploration, as well as mitigate the risks inherent with long-distance travel. 
The Muscovoy Company, also known as the Russian Company or the Muscovoy Trading Company, was the first joint stock company chartered in England in 1555 by Mary I. They maintained a monopoly on trade between England and Russia until 1698, with overland trading routes that led them south to Ostrahan and through Persia that allowed them to trade English cloths for silks and spices on the Silk Road. Other English joint stock companies, such as the Turkey Company and the English East India Company, later opened additional land trade routes through the Middle East, North Africa, and Asia. However, overland travel became increasingly difficult and impractical, so the English turned to looking for better trade routes via the sea. In 1577, Sir Francis Drake set out to circumnavigate the globe, perhaps searching for a northwest passage that would be a better route to India. He left England with five ships and returned in 1581 with only one surviving, and relatively small, ship. While other countries, specifically the Portuguese, already had explorers who had circumnavigated the globe successfully, Drake's trip was seen as a major accomplishment for the English. Two years later, in 1583, Humphrey Gilbert landed on the island of Newfoundland and claimed it for England, consequently creating England's first colony in the Americas. In 1584, Sir Walter Raleigh founded the colony of Roanoke, which lasted less than six years as a 1590 expedition to the area found no trace of the colony. Most modern-day historians agree with the legends and oral histories of the indigenous descendants of the tribes that would have encountered the Roanoke colonists. The Roanoke colonists were not lost, but likely assimilated into the local indigenous culture. However, some scholars question this due to a lack of archaeological evidence. After Roanoke, England diverted resources from establishing colonies to its efforts to defeat Spain in the Anglo-Spanish War. Due to this, it wasn't until 1607, four years after Elizabeth's death, that the next English colony was established in America. The colony, named in her honor, was the Colony of Virginia. England continued to colonize much more of the Americas and, unfortunately, the world. During this time period, early modern England also saw the start of a rapid increase in the monetization of the English economy. Due to the results of exploration and exploitation of the West African coast by the Portuguese in the mid-1400s to about 1520, as well as the exploration of the Americas, European countries saw an influx of precious metals which made minting lower-value coins easier and less expensive. This lowered the cost to participate in markets, allowing for the increase in entrepreneurs that replaced merchant guilds, which, in turn, led to greater specialization in labor. It became easier to make and receive payments, which made it easier for businesses to pay employees and for employees to work additional days. But what industries were these early modern people working in? At the start of the early modern period, 80 to 90% of the population of Europe lived in rural areas, and the economy was dominated by agriculture. Most manufacturing was done at a small scale. Processed food, such as bread, and manufactured items like clothes and brooms were created within households or communities. However, as demand for clothing grew, Textile production became a proto-industry of its own, which led to some families completely abandoning agriculture for manufacturing. In fact, early modern England's largest export was wool and woolen cloth, which was traded abroad in the major European markets in Antwerp and Amsterdam for goods from other countries. 
As money, industry, and trade grew in early modern England and Europe, it did so by simultaneously exploiting the labor of black and brown people who were stolen and enslaved from Africa and the Americas. In 1562, John Hawkins pioneered the English involvement in the triangle trade. In exchange for Spanish gold and jewels, Hawkins supplied Spanish colonies in the Americas with men and women who Hawkins captured or bought in Africa as replacements for the indigenous peoples of the Americas who were enslaved by Spanish colonizers and were now dying from European diseases. Hawkins then sold the gold and jewels back to England. He became the first English merchant to profit from slave trade. And by 1690, England would become the largest shipper of enslaved people from Africa. This is certainly a dark reminder of the effects the economy has had on human development. But let's bring it back to Shakespeare before we wrap up this episode. The economy is written everywhere in Shakespeare's plays. Characters are constantly referring to coinage, trades and industries, borrowing or bargaining, discussing exploration, Midsummer's Mechanicals are merchants, and Biandello in The Taming of the Shrew is a traveling merchant. Even if references to the Elizabethan and Jacobean economy are anachronistic in the settings of some plays, their presence makes sense considering the prominence of the economy on partial theater owner Shakespeare and his mercantile audiences. And that's the early modern economy and Shakespeare. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Cymbeline, Act 5, Scene 5, spoken by Cymbeline. Blessed pray you be that, after this strange starting from your orbs, you may reign in them now.